0: Good morning, everybody. I am Harvey Aronson. I'm one of the founding resident teachers. I have a few things I thought I would talk about today. First would be a little bit of just some basic Buddhist history. We date Buddha approximately 483 BC to 563 BC. Lived about 80 years. Started off as a prince saw some things that were very, very distressing, and decided he wanted to become free from distress. He took on about a seven or eight year spiritual quest. And then at about the age of 32, Gaya, Buddha Gaya, India, he sat down and penetrated the nature of reality, which he described as freeing him from suffering and freeing him from the cycle of rebirth. So I just wanted to share one or two things about the history of Buddhism that people may or may not know, but I think they're kind of important and interesting. And one is that initially the teachings were handed down orally. And so there was a conclave at the end of Buddha's life and there was a rehearsal of everything he had taught but the climate in India is pretty severe, and they didn't actually have books the way we have books. They did do some things on banana leaves, but you can imagine what the half-life of a banana leaf is. So. The teachings were maintained orally, and people would, and they were categorized. So there were the longer teachings, there there were middle-length teachings, there were a whole set of teachings that are basically uh, called one more. And that was a set of teachings where the teachings were given on the basis of numerical categories. So all the teachings that sort of had one as a major topic were grouped together and then there was the twos and then the threes and then the fours. And the other thing to recognize when you look at the early teachings, the earliest level of teachings that we have maintained are called the Theravada Discourses. They don't read like anything you would normally read in a kind of normal Western novel. There's a lot of repetition And part of the reason there's so much repetition is because these teachings were maintained by heart. Some of you may be familiar with this movie, it's actually a remake, Fahrenheit 451, where there are book burners and then people decide to learn books by heart. Well, essentially all of the early Buddhist texts were learned by heart and they were kept by heart so characterizes the nature of the teachings, and if you were to read some of the early teachings, you would see that oh, this has a very, very particular flavor. The other thing just to mention is that in accord with the custom of the day, the spiritual seekers during the time of Buddha's life were wanderers, and they were beggars. They basically lived off of begging alms, walking around, collecting food and clothing, And Buddha adopted that model. But again, you wouldn't know about it, Indian weather, but uh, from about sometime in June to sometime in September, it's the monsoon season in India. And before that it's terribly dry and terribly hot. And then the monsoon comes and then all vegetative and animal life just goes crazy and if you're like on a road in the middle of the monsoon season, often the roads are covered with worms. I mean, they're just crazy covered with worms. And so you can't really walk around without genocidal activity on worms. And uh, Buddhists are considered themselves to be kind and compassionate. and They don't like to take life. So Buddha made the decision that when the rains came, They would shelter in place and stay in one place for the duration of the rainy season. And that was the historic origin of the monastery, where people stayed in place for the rainy season. And eventually, of course, just the length of time that people would stay in a fixed place got longer and longer and longer. Though still, at least in some of the Buddhist countries, especially in South Asia, Ceylon, Thailand, Burma, maybe parts of Vietnam. Monks still go out begging for their food with large bowls and that's how they at least get their food but they typically have a place of residence although some live in the forest and it's basically just living in the forest. So just a little bit of history and a little bit of information about Buddhism in its uh, outward form. And I wanted to say something about our practice we practice a basic form of attention, which is pay attention to the breathing, we rest in the breathing, and or we chant a syllable hum chant the syllable hum twice, whom hum So we're cultivating attention. Another way to say it is we're cultivating mindfulness, and many, many people practice mindfulness, and mindfulness is basically awareness of what is occurring in our mind and our body. If we practice mindfulness for a very, very long time and are really, really attentive to our process of mind and body, it can lead to understandings in a very, very deep way of things like impermanence and the insubstantiality of uh, our experience and just how evanescent every moment of our experience is and, and how even our bodies that we don't necessarily touch into very carefully on a day to day basis is just our experience of our bodies is really just momentary flashes of experience that we superimpose a sense of solidity on our experience. And that sense of solidity and duration is what in a deep way we hold on to even though all experience is absolutely changing moment to moment. And there's consonance in that between modern Western science and Buddhist meditative experience. So when we practice mindfulness, we're cultivating an attention, we're just cultivating a kind of awareness of what is. And I like to give one or two words which are acronyms. And this morning I'll talk about the acronym WISER for the practice of mindfulness. and. Wiser starts with W, which is wonder. And so wonder is just really a kind of fresh, open tension that we bring to our experience. You know, I'm basically going to suggest at 11 that we place our attention on the breath and we rest in the breath. And you might think that's kind of stupid. And so I just encourage you to have an attitude of wonder and see what it's like. I mean, we are all now accustomed to, in a way, overkill by way of stimulus. We've got HDTVs that, you know, at home, they're either 55 or 75 inches. They've got pixels up the wazoo. You know, the range of colors is extraordinary. The sound is super sound. And so we're very, very used to, in a way, overkill stimulation with our senses. With mindfulness practice, mindfulness practice of our experience, we're really turning internally and looking at what's happening in a moment to moment basis in ourselves. And it's a bit of a shift, and it takes a bit of getting used to that the breath, the simple act of breathing may be experienced as very, very fine, as very, very delicate, as very, very complex, and also shifting moment to moment so to have an attitude of wonder, as opposed to been there, done that, is very, very helpful. A Kind of openness to the newness of what's occurring in the moment. So, wiser. I is immediacy. Practicing mindfulness, we're not trying to anticipate the future, we're not trying to consider the past. We're just immediately in the present. Immediacy. S is for space and it really refers to just a very large spaciousness, both what we're attending to and if there are thoughts coming and going, thoughts are coming and going. If there are feelings coming and going, there are feelings coming and going. Those are occurring in the background. We are attending to our breathing. We're not trying to stop our thoughts. We're not trying to stop our feelings. They will be occurring in a natural way but that's not what we're attending to. We're attending to our breath. Wiser, E, equanimity. Equanimity refers to an evenness. It's an evenness of seeing what's occurring. We're not elated over what we're seeing and we're not dejected over what we're seeing. And then R is reverence. And that's in a bit like wonder, but it really speaks to a sense of really valuing our own experience with an attitude of reverence. Reverence for ourselves, reverence for fellow practitioners. And as we slow down, some of these things come quite naturally. We could say from the attitude of, we teach here from a perspective of what's called the Dzogchen perspective, the great completeness, great perfection. orientation and Buddhist practice in Tibet called Dzogchen. And in that perspective, we understand that we all have Buddha nature and that Buddha nature is in a way peeking through our experience. We want to become more and more familiar with it. And all of these qualities of wonder, immediacy, spaciousness, evenness, and reverence can be understood as qualities of Buddha mind that we already have, and we're both cultivating them, but we're cultivating them to allow them to emerge more fully. There's something else that, you know, there's a lot of teaching nowadays on mindfulness out there in the West, and it's mixed in with psychotherapy quite a bit. Typically when it's taught in the Western psychotherapeutic uh, context, the, there's a companion teaching that's typically not taught and that is what's called clear comprehension in Pali. That sampajanya in Tibetan. It's called uh, sheshin. and it really has a variety of meanings. And I just want to talk about maybe two of them. So we become mindful of what's going on inside of us. And so, you know, I'm mindful of I have a hateful thought. With clear comprehension. You are deciding on whether this is kind of useful for your spiritual development or not useful for your spiritual development. If this is something you want to increase or this is just something you want to observe as impermanent. It's not just mindful of what's present, You know, that would be like you could go into Kroger's and be mindful of everything on the shelves at Kroger's. But in some ways, you're going to have to make a decision which bread you're actually going to buy. You know, that bread is better. This bread is worse. So, yes, we observe our experience. We may experience a positive thought. We may experience a negative thought. Outside of developing attention in a focused way, when we're going about our business and day-to-day life, once you start cultivating attention, you'll start noticing your feelings, your thoughts more clearly. I have this generous thought. I'm aware of that. That's positive for my spiritual development. That's positive within the framework of what I want to develop. I'll spend more time with that. I have this really negative thought about this other person. I'll notice its impermanence. This is clear comprehension. So mindfulness, especially off the cushion, is always going to be linked with clear comprehension. What do I do with the nature of my experience of what's going on? So this clear comprehension is In contrast to self-blame and self-shame and self-criticism, it is very, very typical for people to start doing spiritual practice in the West and to start to become very, very self-critical of themselves. I am cultivating attention. I should be cultivating more attention the attention I'm cultivating is not good enough. And people think that they're being mindful in these judgments. Mindfulness is not judgment. Clear comprehension is discrimination, but it's not a blaming judgment. And that fine distinction is critical for practitioners. It is so common for all of us to take up practice in the modern West and find ourselves wanting, I should be practicing harder, I should be practicing better. We do need to be aware of how we are proceeding and we make adjustments, but We don't wanna lean into self-hate. We don't wanna lean into self-criticism. We don't wanna lean into shame around our spiritual life. Uh, It's not useful to get immersed into shame. And I'll just sort of say that it's, it's a kind of easy trap to fall into, and why is that? So you hear something about meditation or mindfulness. It may calm the mind eventually. Sounds attractive. It may lead to a little better focus. It might make you a little bit less reactive. Ultimately, it may lead to freedom from suffering, a kind of large, spacious mind experience. Yummy, these are attractive things. May make us more compassionate to ourselves and others. Yummy. It's lovely to be more compassionate to ourselves and others. It's lovely to be more centered. It's lovely to be calmer. It's lovely to experience spaciousness. But we somehow put all of that out there and we feel ourselves here and we get into a kind of striving mentality or practice mentality, which we do need to practice. I mean, it's important to practice. But it's a very, very fine line between, I know that I can be calmer, I can be deeper, I can understand things differently, I can be more compassionate. Knowing all that is kind of a reality. And saying to oneself, I'm a terrible person because I'm not practicing more. To be calmer, more spacious, more even, more compassionate. Or I'm a terrible person because I'm not more spacious, compassionate even already. But this is what afflicts us. And it's a great part of the journey actually to be able to um, Both practice, be engaged in endeavor, recognize that there are things that can develop in the future, know that there are things that are experienced in the present, know that there's more to come, know that whatever level of practice that you're doing, somebody else somewhere on this planet is doing a lot more, and to be at peace with oneself, to be at peace with oneself. It's an actual, that in itself is a large spiritual practice itself. To be at peace and content with what one is doing and with whatever level of accomplishment, spiritual accomplishment, one has attained. And to remain engaged in deepening one's accomplishment. That's not not such an easy thing to do. For all of us, most of us, the way we have learned to sort of get through things and to motivate ourselves is you know, kind of a kick-ass attitude, which can include a fair bit of self-loathing. And so we really wish to learn how to be gentle, with ourselves, gentle in our practice, gentle with our peers, gentle with new students, gentle with old students, to recognize that we're all doing what we can. We're all attempting to do something wonderful and that it's okay to strive and it's okay to want to even strive harder. And we work with ourselves. I recently read a really painful article about two women Olympic swimmers who are both severely, severely plagued by depression, and it really has to do with perfectionism. You know, I told you the teaching we teach is called the Great Perfection. Buddhahood is seen a kind of perfect state. It's a kind of setup. If we're not really mindful of, I'm not a Buddha. Yike, it's okay. We strive, we know where we are, we know what we're doing, and we're gentle with ourselves, and we're gentle with others, and we may make a great deal of effort, a great deal of effort. We don't necessarily just rest comfortably, and we don't beat ourselves up. And that's a big challenge. If you enjoyed this teaching, please visit our website, donmountain.org to subscribe to this course and find other great Dharma offerings. May all beings always have happiness in its causes. May all beings always be free of pain in its causes.